Good afternoon and welcome to Exploring the Security Considerations of Moving Your Email to the Cloud, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Proofpoint. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll have a poll that we get to later in the program. Nice way to view the screen, click in the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get the slides and the video boxes the size you want them, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35 to 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Steve Garaya, VP and Enterprise CISO with the Westchester Medical Center Health Network, Chuck Podesta, Interim CIO with Yukon Health, and Ryan Witt, Managing Director of Healthcare for Proofpoint. So let's jump right in. It's an important topic and we really want to explore it and dig out some value for our attendees today. So Steve, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Yeah, great. Anthony, thanks for being, uh, allowing me to join you guys. I'm looking forward to having a robust discussion in today's webinar. Um, we're about 10 hospital system in Hudson Valley, New York. Um, beautiful Hudson Valley this time of the year. Um, we have about 150, 200 physician practices across the enterprise. Um, and we're about 1,200 to 12,000 to 14,000 employees. Very good, Chuck. Yes, uh, thank you, Anthony, and uh, welcome, everyone. I, I know everybody's busy, so it's um, hopefully this will be um, uh, add value to your day. So I'm uh, Chuck Podesta. I'm the uh, CIO of uh, UConn Health. Uh, we are in Farmington, Connecticut, ac um, an academic medical center, um, large clinic presence. We also have uh, two schools of medicine. One is a, a school of medicine. The other one is school of dentistry and also a large uh, research uh, enterprise. Very good, Chuck. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, Ryan Witt uh, from Proofpoint. Uh, Proofpoint is a security vendor that really focuses on protecting people, how they work, how they're most likely attacked. Um, today's really threat vector is all around people essentially being targeted by the cyber criminal uh, marketplace or organizations. And so we try to do our best to protect against them and mitigate against those sort of threats. And I run the healthcare industry practice for Proofpoint, and I'm also the chair of the company's healthcare customer advisory board. Very good, Ryan. Thank you. All right, let's jump right in. Chuck, let's start with you. How's your email managed today? If you haven't migrated to the cloud, do you have plans to do so? Yes, a uh, very timely question. Um, our email system right now is on-premise. Um, which is not a good place for it to be. And, uh, but we are in the process of moving to O365, the Microsoft Cloud uh, product. Um, UConn, the University of Connecticut, the, um, uh, the undergrad and graduate school, they're already on uh, O365. So uh, our goal is to join them both from a security standpoint, but then also to um, share schedules and things like that. Um, we have a lot of people that go back and forth between the two organizations. So uh, that's, that'll be one of the benefits we have. But uh, 
we, we need to move it. It's on old servers and, um, you know, we're definitely exposed from a, a standpoint of security. Um, so we're, we're moving quickly on it. So that's why you said on-prem is not a good place. You mean in your specific situation or do you think in general? Uh, I, be I believe in general because, uh, you know, I know we're talking about, you know, attacks and email and probably get into phishing and things like that, but we're also running servers and servers are an attack vector, right? You've got to patch them. If they're not patched, you're not up to date on those. Those can be attack vector as well. They certainly can be in the cloud, but I'd rather have be running on Microsoft you know, cloud servers with all their protection that they have than my own servers in my data center. Very good, Steve. And we're uh, good timing as well. We're just coming off of a off 365 migration um, was a very telling experience. Um, we had planned it for a while, but due to COVID, it got delayed a little bit, but we just moved over. Um, this weekend is the last weekend. We're moving over some um, legacy folders. Um, yeah, but it's been a goal of ours to get off the legacy uh, on-prem system, as, as Chuck said, keeping up with patches and server versions and all the different vectors that are pushing at the servers, getting it to a Microsoft environment where I felt a little comfortable. Again, nowhere is safer than any other. You have to have security controls at all aspects. You have to really make sure that, you know, you have all the different controls in place, both on-prem and in the cloud. But having it uh, with Microsoft, with Microsoft security stack on top of it, we feel a little better, but I saw earlier on the post on LinkedIn, someone mentioned, hope we don't say it's safer, it's not safer anywhere. And maybe it makes us feel a little better. It may make us a little more efficient in managing the risk, but it's still a concern of ours. Ryan, your thoughts? I mean, I think I would, I would agree with what's been said. I mean, I think you have to move to the cloud at some point anyway particularly if you're, um, Microsoft is your, your messaging tool. Um, I think there's a lot of value in moving it to the cloud for the reasons that Chuck identified, for example, that you don't wanna be really involved in having to manage uh, those servers, those environments. Uh, servers are not the main threat vector these days. They certainly were a few years ago and they could be again. So if you can remove that threat vector from your environment, environment why wouldn't you? Um, but I would also very much agree with what, what Stephen said as well. I mean, it, you you can outsource the capability to Microsoft or anyone else for that matter, but you can't outsource the responsibility for safeguarding that data and safeguarding your, your email environment. And if you did so, you do so at your peril. Um, uh, we have found and the marketplace has found that those environments are just as vulnerable and just as highly, in fact, they're more attacked because if you can get a credential on a cloud environment, what you can do with that is pretty pretty pronounced. And so that's, that gets to a very high kind of high watermark or gold standard of, of data that a, a bad actor or cyber criminal would love to obtain. So you need to make sure you have your security controls in place uh, just, just as much as you would do if you, if you had those things on-prem. All right, we're going to get into all that a lot more. Um, Steve, uh, back to you. So do you know who is in your organization is being attacked on email? Um, we do to an extent, absolutely. We know who the top threat vectors are. We look at the folks that are considered big fish that are getting spammed more than anyone else. We look at, at the various uh, access points or firewalls our other microsecurity stack that we have in-house. And we know 
the type of uh, users that are getting fished more than others. We know that their profile is out there. For example, a CFO would get more fish than a supply chain analyst or someone in finance is a richer target for a fishing organization than a guy who works in a supply, supply chain that doesn't have access to finance. So absolutely, we do have an idea. We are tracking that daily. We do run um, uh, analytics and statistics on these things daily. We are uh, tailoring our cybersecurity education, email education, email etiquette to those groups as well. But it's not 100%. You can think you're completely in control, but then you're not. You're always fighting against a new threat that's out there. But knowing who's getting attacked, knowing the role that that person is in allows you to tailor your program and protection and education to those individuals as well. Very good, Chuck. Yeah, so very similar to Steve. We're actually a a proof point customer for about a year now. Um, Prior to that, and I I started at UConn Health about four months before we brought in proof point. So I saw what was going on from a phishing and it was widespread. Um, you know, companies like Proofpoint, you know, really with their filters, really get, get you to hone, de- hone down on, you know, you know, where they're and, and you can decrease that amount that's coming in, you know, whether it's spam related, um, but also from a phishing pers- perspective as well, those systems pick it up. Um, the other thing that we, and, and it is widespread, it's, it could be spear phishing for senior leaders uh, and then just, you know, random fishing for everybody else in the organization. What we're seeing right now is um, a, a really an uptick in how good these phishing emails are. Uh, I almost felt, you know, we do a lot of mock phishing. I'm sure Steve does as well. And, you know, I always tell my security CISO, you know, don't tell me, you know, what it is. I, you know, just if I get it, I get it. I, I want to make sure I'm keeping on top of my game. And the last couple, I came real close uh, to Longform. I mean, they were set up really nice. They had the right domain, uh, the right message, you know, that sort of thing. So uh, it's getting harder and harder and harder. Yeah, and and it's so critical. They would change one letter in the domain name for an I to an upper lowercase L. And to the naked eye, it does not look different. You could be looking at it. And after three days of looking like, oh, my God, that's an I instead of an L. Or something that simple that makes us unless you have the trained eye, and even with the trained eye, you, it's hard to detect. But what bothers me too as well, some people are getting caught up in the obvious ones as well, and that's still shocking to me today. Knowing everything is out there, all the education we've done and everything we've done, there's some simple, simple one that obviously don't click on it, and some people are still clicking on it. That that really does concern me. Uh, Steve, do you see uh, a point where you differentiate the the remediation and the discipline or the, however it's going to be addressed by how easy it should have been to detect? So, for example, if somebody clicks on something that's absolutely ridiculous for them to think was legitimate, you address that one way versus someone who clicks on something that's very subtle, as you mentioned? I think that's open for discussion with HR and senior leaders again. Um, I think that has value. Looking at something that's very, that the I versus the L thing that mm-hmm. I saw someone clicked on versus an obvious says, you know, your Amazon package was delivered, but it comes to your work email. Who does that? So, but 
it all depends on your organization culture. Different organizations treat things differently. Different organizations are willing to push harder than some. We can recommend as best we can and say this is the penalty, this is the remediation effort, this is how employees should be treated. But again, it all depends on the organization's appetite to address it. I see organizations now more open to penalties and punitive measurements. I know organization within our geographical area that will let someone go if they got caught once or twice. The first shot, your bonuses get taken away. Second one, you're gone. So it's absolutely should be considered, but again, it's all based on your organization culture. Yeah, we're, we're doing the same thing, uh, Anthony, we're moving into, because you have the data now, you know the repeat kind of offenders. And, um, and sometimes it's on the same type of phishing, you know, and, and so what we're doing now is we do have, you know, online training that, that people have to go through uh, on a regular basis, but we're targeting the ones that have the multiple, uh, you know, they go into multiple times and, and click on things. So um, luckily it's not huge, but all you need is one, right? Uh, when it comes to ransomware and things like that, just one person. So we take it, we take these folks offline and we're starting to do a one-to-one where they, you know, it's like being on Zoom, WebEx and our security team, they have to go through uh, an online training face-to-face one at a time. And then we monitor them after that. And we still finding some people are still falling for it even after intense training. So we are working with HR right now to try to figure out what's the best way to deal with these people because they are putting the organization at extreme risk. I mean, just look at, you know, what's happened to, I won't name the organizations, but, you know, with some of the ransomware attacks that have happened recently, it's millions and millions and millions of dollars. And um, you can't have one person, you know, constantly violating uh, or not understanding or whatever they're doing, you know, stay employed in your organization. It's just too much of a risk. Chuck, one of the things that we found that worked really well is moving from the online training to the in-person training and appealing to these people in more with visual graphics <laughs> and, and stories, but also being in front of that person and looking them in the eye and trying to engage them and convey to them the, the seriousness of, of, of just clicking on something. We all have taken those HIPAA courses online and, you know, we click through them and, yeah, yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that. But unless you get in front of these people, so what I found that if you're one one and you click on the second one, you're putting that on in-person training in front of us and we're going to deliver the message to you. Speak, look in your eyes and try to convince you that how significant it is what you've done. So that, yeah, that I mean, worked build, tremendously for us. Building upon that, I mean, I want to go back to some of the um, the targeting in a second, but just building on what Steve just said, I mean, we pivoted our, our training courseware to be to do just that. So our courseware, it had a compliancy angle for the most part, but we really pivoted to say it's about patient safety now. And so there's an implication of if you get fall foul, fall foul of a phishing attack or other forms of attack, you are putting the institution at risk. You are putting the institution at an inability to provide kind of basic patient care. And it's, it is a patient safety issue. It's a Hippocratic oath issue. And so don't want to make over dramatize this, but I mean, there is a direct connection and we saw this and I think Chuck alluded to it. I don't want to name the organization either, but there's some very large, well-funded organizations who basically could not provide basic patient care to their 
to their population base for the best part of a month. And so it could happen. Um, going back a little bit, we, we try to make a distinction between commodity-based attacks. So the kind of attacks that everybody's receiving in the millions um, and those attacks we would expect for the most part uh, um, to get blocked by any sort of sophisticated sort of um, email gateway should be able to block those sort of attacks. And those attacks generally go towards the big fish. Anybody who's got a large sort of public presence um, will get targeted to be sure. But more and more, we're looking at severity of attacks. So what are the very, very targeted attacks that are very directed towards a specific member of the organization or a specific group within the organization department or whatever? And to, to us, those are those are the ones that are that cause us more kind of concern because, as Chuck alluded to, the sophistication of those attacks are very pronounced now, and the level of social engineering that the cyber criminal organizations are using to understand you as a person, your role, your job function, where you fit in the organization, uh, what you're likely signing authority might be what you like to have access to, and then them writing a very compelling lure with all the right sort of vernacular that would make you want to would feel natural to interact with that sort of email. I mean, it, it's happening and I wouldn't under, I wouldn't, uh, I don't want to over um, emphasize how, how sophisticated these lures now are getting. And just during COVID, we saw this as the COVID news cycle changed and it almost changed on a daily basis um, from, you know, what is COVID to how do I get PPE to what does the CARE Act give and tax? I mean, the lures were changing daily with the news cycle. And you're if you're receiving these sort of emails, you're having to kind of wrestle with constantly, is this email legitimate? And I could see why, as again, as Chuck alluded to, it's becoming difficult. Yeah. Um... Chuck, it sounds like health. Do you think that healthcare organizations are struggling with how to address this in terms of the the severity of the uh, consequences? Healthcare organizations are notorious for sometimes not dealing with problems. Uh, people stay 20, 30 years, perhaps not as effective as they once were, if ever, if ever they were. They just don't deal with problems. Um, so when we come to security and breaches and things like that, I wonder, is there a tug of war between security, IT security and HR in terms of you might have IT security saying, you got to do something about this. We can't have this keep happening. And HR as well. Well, let's talk to him again. Do you see that becoming an issue? Uh, absolutely. Just like anything else with, with, with security and breaches and until it happens, then you get everything that you need to have in place, right? You get the money to do the, the products, you get penalties for people, you know, falling for phishing, but it's always after the fact in healthcare. And, and that's what the struggle is because I think one, people don't totally understand security in, the de in, in as much detail as, as we do, you know, on this panel. And uh, so it's kind of like out there and everybody wants to give, Another, you know, uh, everybody wants to give everybody else a fair shake, right? And so if you fail for a phishing attack, you fail for two, you fail, it's like, okay, let's try one more time. Let's try one more time. Well, in between that, they just clicked on something 
and you know, 75 or $80 million later, and you know, 45 days of downtime, you are the one, the one person who caused that in the organization. And that's a hard concept to get across to people. Um, I, I think it's getting there now, unfortunately, because there's so much of this in the news. And so CEOs are saying, wow, did you see what happened to so-and-so over here? Uh, you know, can that happen to us? And what can we do about it? And, and now they're starting to take it more seriously. But unfortunately, you know, you got to have these, these failures um, before people respond. Steve, any thoughts, sir? Yeah, absolutely. A couple of years ago, it was not as the, the leadership team and the boards and the executive go- governance teams were not as engaged. But knowing all the high profile attacks that have happened, it has helped us a lot. Board members and executives are hearing these things at Omen TV and they're wondering, what is that? How does it affect us? It just raises their awareness and we're able to capitalize on that and work with them to get a larger budget to support us again. But it uh, has changed. It's not where it should be. We, I mean, I think the funding needs to improve, improve across the board. I think the, the, the awareness is there. Awareness has gotten much better. But again, the laymen on the floor, the folks in finance that, that has access to something, don't really get the consequence of clicking on an email. So that's our job to convince them and show them what a simple act of clicking on an email, providing a credential can happen, what it can cost you money, what it can cost you in reputational damages, how it can affect the patient safety, how it could actually kill someone. So really, really realizing and teaching them and showing them what can be done from a, a group, grassroots level all the way up to the executive team will, will help. But again, it has gotten better, but it's not where it should be. Ryan, any thoughts? I, I, I would agree. It's definitely gotten better, um, but we have a long way to go. I mean, what I call the meaningful use era where you know, there was a race to go secure the dollars associated to making sure you can roll out your EMR. Um, people, our organizations were trying to get, satisfy the, the, the requirements, security requirements to get those dollars. And I think it gave healthcare a false sense of security, you know, kind of pun intended, um, knowing that, okay, well, we satisfy the requirements for meaningful use and we, we therefore have met the, the, basic standards for security, sort of securing our data, but knowing, probably deep down, knowing that maybe they weren't secure overall. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, I got borne out um, in terms of the tax we've seen over the last five years. But if I look, think about the conversations I'm having, uh, I would say hospital boards definitely get it. I think clinicians definitely get it. Um, so once upon a time, it was thought that the clinician or the physician was gonna be the roadblock because they don't want to have any sort of adverse impact to, to workflow or to patient care. But I think they now do recognize that they need to have access to these systems and make to ensure they have access to these systems, they have they need to have some controls in place. And so I think the, the, the needle is definitely moving in the right direction. Is it moving quickly enough? Perhaps not, but we are seeing a definite marked change in the attitude towards protecting this data because it's the right thing to do, because it's a patient safety issue, not because there's some sort of legislation that says you have to. Right. I would add that clinicians are more receptive now than ever before of me restricting what they can do. In the olden days, two, three years ago, I tried to restrict their access to data, putting something on their mobile phone, along with my email on your phone. It was a firestorm. 
Now you can talk to them. They understand. They're willing to work with you. They get it. Yeah, they don't want to be bothered or inconvenience, but they get it. And you got to use that to your advantage. But I, I see a definite improvement across the board, but a long ways to go. Yeah, no, I, and oh, go ahead, I agree with, you know, but think about it from the past, you know, even five years ago, was anybody even talking about ransomware, right? I mean, everything we were trying to do was protect PHI. And now that seems so, I mean, it, it seems like if I have a breach of 3,500 patients in PHI and, you know, back then you had to go on the wall of shame with o, uh, OCR and they're coming to visit and you have these, you know, seven million, seven figure fines that you could potentially have. All that seems like child's play now, you know? I mean, we have gone from that to, mil, I mean, 50 to $100 million when you're, you know, not that the ransomware costs that much, but the downtime, the, you know, closing all your ORs uh, and uh, diverting from your ED and all those things. You didn't have to do that when you had a PHI breach. Right. And so it, the game is totally different now. It's different. Imagine when, and Ryan mentioned meaningful use. Remember meaningful use stage two when they told you you got to encrypt data at rest? You're like, oh my God, that's the holy grail. All right. <laughs> and how far we've come from that. So things are definitely moving forward. It, it's a different game now. You know, it, I totally agree with you. We should also mention fraud as a, as a challenge because um, ransomware gets all the headlines for all the obvious reasons, all the we, reasons we just discussed. But there's still a lot more dollars lost to fraud, um, you know, than there are to, to ransomware. And, you know, I think Steve alluded to a little bit earlier, this, this, this simple notion of changing the I to the L, um, those sort of fraudulent attacks or, unfortunately, when you see controls or when you see um, these sort of emails coming from either what looks like to be a legitimate um, email source because of the masking, the technology they use, or um, there's some data come out recently that said, you know, 54% of all attacks do come now from a legitimate file share, like, you know, like a Microsoft or a, a box or whatever. So they, they've broken into the system and they're using that as a, as a, as a launch pad to go send their controls send those, send their exploits. Like those sort of fraudulent attacks, whether they're based on hitting your foundation and trying to hit charitable contributions, whether they're hitting your supply chain, um, whether they're trying to go exfiltrate IP from your research organization, if that's a, a component you have in your institution, those sort of attacks are, what we see most regularly on a day-in, day-out basis. And those are the ones that are costing healthcare the most real dollars. Ransomware is something that absolutely we have to be concerned about. But those are thankfully still a little bit, although they're noteworthy, they're still a little bit infrequent. And we're not seeing too many of them. When they happen, of course, they, they're they severe. But um, it's worth noting that imposter cell attacks or fraud attacks are also kind of like one of the huge things that are impacting healthcare. And they're kind of, again, outside of the OCR sort of wall of shame remit because it's not about violating or stealing someone's data. It's about exfiltrating or redirecting funds. All right, very good. Next question. Uh, Chuck, we'll start with you. What controls do you put in place to protect your most attacked users? And what controls do you have in place to detect fraud, such as imposter emails, domain spoofing? Yeah, so, um, you know, besides besides ProofPoint, which helps out a lot uh, in what we're doing, we're also putting in some 
uh, looking at some products around, uh, we have, actually have a big security uplift that we're doing right now. Actually started last fall. We were, and if you remember that uh, Ryuk targeted ransomware attack, we were one of 400 organizations on the dark web list uh, to be attacked. So we got that call from the FBI and um, it, it, luckily we, we did not get attacked. Uh, it actually helped me move forward mm-hmm. faster on some initiatives. Um, we put in CrowdStrike uh, managed services, Cisco um, umbrella within like three days um, had these things up and running. Um, so you've got to, and, and, and managed services, I think is the way of the future with some of this stuff because you just can't keep up with the tools and companies like CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, they're out there, they understand what's going on and they keep adding product. Uh, to their portfolio to help us out. One of the big issues here with phishing is that you can, you know, you do all the mark phishing you want, but there's a lot of accounts that get compromised on a regular basis that you don't know about. Um, You know, you may think you're okay because you have a low um, percentage of people falling for phishing, uh, but these accounts are being compromised and they're not being used yet. And again, back to ransomware, a lot of times they sit there for months and months and months before they come in and, and uh, wreak havoc. So there's products, you know, uh, CrowdStrike has something called Vulcan. There's other companies out there that have other products that actually go out and tell you how many of your accounts have been compromised, however they were compromised, most likely through phishing. Uh, and you've got people who've got administrative rights and things like that that have been compromised. And um, you've got accounts that haven't been used in, you know, five years that are still on your system. You know, you need to do something about those. Uh, And and I think that's just as important as trying to stop things, you know, from the front end. And we're seeing, we just implemented that about a month ago. We're doing a lot of cleanup. I mean, we're talking thousands of accounts that are being compromised. Um, And any one of those could be an attack vector by somebody on the dark web to do fraud, to do um, uh, ransomware or, or whatever, so. Steve? Uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, it's uh, not a simple answer. It's a complicated answer, but uh, we have, I think we have a good program in place. We're a high trust shop and we are guided by high trust guidelines. And there are many things there, controls in place and processes that does help us. But in the nitty gritty, we have a number of things in place like dual factor authentication across the board. I think one of the major things we've done last year and finish up this year is, um, you know, privilege access management, making sure the access is limited to those that are needed and actually, if you don't need it, it gets removed. Privilege access management is critical to this. Yes, you can do all the education, you can do all the in-person training, you can use all great tools like Proofpoint have, somebody's gonna get in at some point. And if they get it, you want to make sure they're limited to what they can do. And they cannot crawl across the network and get to someone that has elevated access to change another person's credential and then allow them access to the whole holy grail of your, your data. So privilege access management, we were focusing on it, really looking at those big fishes, the people that are targeted the most and based on their roles and really giving them the access required and removing the access when not required. It's a really big focus of ours right now. In addition to that, we're going into micro-segmentation. For example, a guy in finance, really, yes, he may need a certain level of access. If he was, so, for God forbid, get compromised, 
he cannot spread and they cannot spread across the network to get to others as well. So looking at that, working with a variety of different vendors, we have this other vendor that looks at all our file shares. If they see any sort of encryption changes, anything that looks uh, out of the order, out of the ordinary, they would alert us. So uh, we have a variety of tools like you know, Cisco Umbrella, just all provide a whole Cisco suite we're working on. We have the proof point tool as well. And it's a multifaceted approach. It's not a one phase approach. You gotta attack it from all ends. Preventing them from coming in, but be aware that they're gonna get in somehow and have controls in place to limit what they can do when they get in. Ryan? Yeah, we, we, we focus really heavily on trying to determine who is attacked and therefore then what should your control options be? So let me give you two examples. Um, we've advised a number of institutions that their clinical research function is un heavily under attack, and in many cases under attack by nation state actors who tend to be more sophisticated in their, in their type of exploits they send. So once we guide that that particular fun job function is under attack, then it's, we, we try to work with the health system or the academic research institution to say, what are the right controls you should be considering um, to help safeguard? And so there was a number of controls and then, you know, DLP became one of them. In one um, instance, they wanted to do insider threat sort of management. Isolation was a very popular sort of control. So you can isolate someone's um, email activity. Um, but then the other end of the spectrum, um, and I to this day, I can't really explain why this happened, but we noticed a significant uptick um, mid, early to mid last year um, that in a number of large health systems, we saw um, the hospice organization being targeted. And we, we did not expect to see that. And I certainly the health systems that we talked to didn't expect to see that either. And so, and I, I think candidly, those those health systems didn't have as many controls for that part of the organization. Um, and so they looked at it completely. When we advised them that we saw this was happening, and it was widespread, you know, and they were, you know, of like the hundred departments that we identified through Active Directory, you know, in these institutions, this was like the fourth most attacked department. So it was like it was right up there. And so I think in that instance, they felt like security awareness training was the right sort of control to put in place to help them identify, make them aware that they're a target and help them identify what, what, a, what a suspicious email might look like. So, but I think the, the, the overarching point here is if you understand where the bad actors are attacking, um, and there's data definitely out there to allow you to have that level of, of, of insight, um, then I think it gives you the options to say, okay, well, what would be the right control for that variant for those departments? Um, and if you try to understand the motivation of the attack, and that's hard because, I mean, we don't talk to cyber criminals, uh, but if you understand the motivation, that again could also start start to dictate what controls are the best for that, for the, the best form of protection. All right, very good. Uh, let's get a little bit more into the, the cloud issue. Steve, let's start with you. One of the main concerns with moving email to the cloud has been security. Some see it as improved. Some, uh, you know, we mentioned it still challenges. How does moving your email to the cloud expand its attack surface? And what are you doing to mitigate against these threats? Well, as we discussed earlier, Anthony, um, the threat, I think, 
uh, exists no matter where you are with phishing emails and all spear phishing and not just uh, ransomware, but uh, criminal attacks as well. Does this uh, exist both on on-prem servers versus servers in the cloud that I manage by Microsoft or wherever you have? Um, we feel a little better that this, the patches of the servers and the management of the server and being on a Microsoft stack, we feel a lot better that we're a little more protected, but you still have to have all the controls we spoke about earlier. You still have to make sure that you're, you're targeting, making sure reduce the spam. You got to continuously educate your user, bring in user awareness training, really focusing on them and understanding the gravity of getting uh, clicked or caught in a, a spear phishing, understanding all the different uh, level of controls we spoke about earlier. Yes, uh, they, uh, it is a little more secure as in you're in a little more controlled environment, but I personally feel it's the risk is still there and you still have to carry on as you would with all the controls in place, both uh, on the technical side, but also on a user behavioral side organization, culture, punitive uh, remediation for people that have really clicked on things more, more than once. And also uh, the most important is really getting the users to understand the gravity of what impact would be of them clicking on something. Steve, do you think of it in a sense that you're paying to offload some risk? Like you're paying Microsoft to for them to then assume some risk? Because it's hard to tell in some of the statements we hear, no, you're not absolved of anything here. You still have total responsibility so I'm just not sure how to think of that. I, I don't think you're paying them. It's, I think the risk still exists. I, I think it's the way the world is going for efficiency and management of the servers. And, but I don't think moving to Microsoft Office 365, you do it for uh, risk mitigation effort at all. It may be perceived a little less risky. The risk is still there. But that is not the main goal of moving to Office 365 at all. Chuck? Yeah, no, I agree with Steve. I mean, the, the main goal for, for most organizations, for us included, there's an ROI associated yeah. with, um, you know, you're getting rid of the capital cost of the servers, upgrading those. Storage on-prem is a lot more expensive than storage in the cloud. So you can expand people's uh, emails, you know, uh, their storage to much greater uh, space than, than what you can do on-prem. On um, so, and, and you're, you don't have the capital cost anymore. It's all, uh, OPEX at that point. So there is an ROI associated with it, you know, based on that. And then also managing that, those servers, the people that do that, you know, they can do other things now and, and not work on that. Um, but I agree with Steve. I mean, you still have all the issues and in some cases, even more, because by expanding those, those mailboxes, right. Now you have even more information in those mailboxes that uh, the bad actors can get get to. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you talk about clinical research and things like that, they, they're, they're going to be storing a lot more uh, intellectual property and things like that that can be accessed by a nation state or, or whatever the bad actor may be out there. So um, you, you do have that risk. So what Steve says is right. I mean, you still have to have two-factor authentication and and poop point and, and, and all these other tools in place um, to, to manage that. So it's more of a financial, I think, um, decision than a security one. Ryan? I, I would agree. I think your risk actually goes up, not down. Um, 
partly because there's a perception that your risk goes down. And so therefore there's this sort of perception at times like, okay, we solved that problem. Well, you haven't really. Um, and sure, you have some, some maybe some, some controls in place with regards to patches, upgrades and that kind of stuff that you don't have to worry about. And you, you've mitigated a little bit of risk for that sort of threat vector, but ultimately this is still your data this data still runs your 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 health system. If this data gets compromised, you're going to feel a lot of pain uh, in one form or another. Uh, I think the other point's worth mentioning, um, and I think Chuck alluded to this a little bit earlier, Ponymon's been tracking for quite some time now about how long does a bad actor go undetected in your network? And I think that the figure right now for healthcare is about six months. So, you know, I don't want to be too creepy here, but that's kind of the equivalency of somebody living in your spare bedroom in the closet of your spare bedroom for six months before you realize it. And they're using that time and they're generally very patient to understand how your organization works before they choose to, to launch their exploits against you. If they're in the cloud, their ability to laterally move is, is can be pretty significant. So I don't think your risk goes down at all. I think you you have potentially a lot of exposure in addition to, for those reasons, in addition to what Chuck was alluding to about more data being stored there, et cetera. So, Ryan, you're saying it goes up. Correct. Chuck, is is that, that's something, right? The risk goes up when you move to the cloud. Yeah, and I, I think it goes back to, um, you know, what Ryan said and, and Steve alluded to earlier as well, was that, you know, the attacks aren't coming at the server level as much. You know, um, uh, if you're behind in patching, that's a bad thing. Uh, and those servers are on premise. But, you know, the denial of service attacks and things like that, you don't see that much anymore. Um, it's less frequent. Um, you're seeing more on the fraud, the ransomware, other types of attacks um, that having it on prem or uh, having it in the cloud does not stop those types of attacks. So, uh, and, and again, with what I mentioned with the more data to access, um, you know, that, that makes it uh, risky, more riskier as well. So again, you just need to have all those tools uh, still in place. Yeah, it's a financial play. That's what you're saying. Um, all right, I wanna do our Ask a Co-Panelist segment. Uh, Ryan, why don't you start off? Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Uh, actually, I wouldn't mind touching on that question that came through by a chat as well. Ah, Mr. Spooner, our, our friend, industry legend, Bill Spooner. Right. We um, love him. We love him. Uh, do you want me to? Let me read it off, Ryan, and then yeah. you can start with it. Sure. Colonial Pipelines attack is reported to have been enabled by lack of MFA on a single server. What is the state of multi-factor authentication implementation in your organizations? 100%. Ryan, what are you seeing industry wide? So, so we want to put that to we want Ryan. You want to address that, or we want to put it to our our other co-panelists. Put to the co-panelists, and I'll 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 come up. All right, up Steve, and... why don't you jump in? I'll take that. We just uh, fully implemented Cisco MFA to all our uh, email clients, as well as any outsiders coming in from Citrix to any access point we have across the board. That's one of the key things to have in place. Not having MFA enabled, specifically when it comes to Office 365, that you can access from anywhere else, it's a significant risk. 
imagine yourself, Anthony, at the beach, using a computer at the hotel to access your Office 365 email without multi-factor authentication. Think of how scary that is. Mm -hmm. The multi-factor authentication is one tool. It's a necessity at this point. Not having it, it's just leaving yourself open. Not the only thing you should have, but it's absolutely important. Chuck? Yeah, we're the same as uh, as Steve. We've got um, multi-factor rolled out um, internally, externally, um, and uh, but it's only been a year, and so uh, you know we're, I I feel we're late to the game. We should have had it a, a lot earlier than that. I'm talking to other CIOs out there. I tell you, there's a lot that still don't have it, or they have it only on privileged accounts, that sort of thing. And again, it, it, to me, it's it's they run into the kind of the roadblock. You know, a lot of times if you have research, uh, you get pushback from the researchers on, you know, the difficulty to sign in. They, they don't understand why they need to do this two-factor stuff. You also get it across the board sometimes with uh, physicians and other people in the organization. And if they make enough noise, then you limit the uh, implementation of it. And, and And you've got to figure out a way to push through on that stuff. And I know... Uh, some CIOs and some organizations are struggling with that. Very good, Steve. Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Well, I want to just—I want to just oh, add. Sorry, it. Ryan. Go ahead. That's okay, no problem. Um, so, from my point of view, um, email is the largest delivery vehicle for ransomware, with the one exception, and that is any sort of RDP device that only has single-factor authentication. That is by far the the main delivery mechanism for ransomware and i don't i'm sure there's data out there on this but i wouldn't be surprised in healthcare if we we saw adoption of um uh multi-factor on those sort of devices to be less than 50 percent so actually, I mean, we have a long way actually, to go. yeah i actually had a, a, them all removed recently and try to put a vpn client in there with multi-factor that was a gaping hole we had specifically on the radiologists out there reading with large images need to have a robust pipeline coming back to the, the organization. So that's definitely a concern. And we've, we've gotten ahead of that, but I can see where others have not even addressed it or realized that the, the concern that's out there. Very good. Steve, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, Ryan, I know you work uh, with various different health systems and I know we're all, you know, up on ransomware and various attacks. And, and a lot of the, it's been in the news, the mul multitude from the colonial pipeline to various different hospitals, everyone is being attacked. What are you seeing on the board level, the executive level, as the urgency and the ability to spend more this year versus last year, and really to refocus and expanding your cybersecurity capabilities? That's a good question. Um... We, uh, how do I want to say this? So we, we did mention the, the health system in question who recently got attacked uh, for ransomware. The West, the, West, the West Coast health system, let's call it that way. Um, there, I mean, I, I think that might be a seminal moment in that um, that means it can happen to anybody, essentially. I mean, it's the, I think before there's been some times where some of the attacks are like, yeah, that that won't happen to us. We're larger, we're, we're more funded, we have much better investments in security infrastructure. It won't happen to us. I have a feeling that a lot of people took note of what happened recently and the the ensuing impact 
uh, of the whole institution. Um, and, you know, and, I, and that combined with what happened to um, an academic health system um, on the East Coast, you know, kind of in the Thanksgiving sort of time frame, when the, and the ensuing article, the New York Times, which talked about that attack, uh, like from a clinician point of view, from a patient point of view, from a uh, from a doctor's point of view, and and they really, I think that they made that a very human story, and they explained it at a much more human level, not like at a cost level. Of course, that's that's going to be important, but at a human level, I think those kind of two events make me wonder if we're maybe are having a um, a, a huge seminal moment where maybe. The, the boards are now taking this much more seriously, recognizing that this is something they have got to tackle. I'm hoping that's the case. Chuck, you made a few comments today that it made me think of the phrase, never let a crisis go to waste. And that's what it sounds like, you know, we're saying here as an executive who's trying to get things done, when something happens somewhere else, and even when something happens to you, use it as an opportunity to show, hey, look, I was serious. Look what happened. Can we now do what we need to do? Right, right. And Ryan, you know, you mentioned the East Coast uh, issue. They were very open, which is what you have to do. You, you know, unfortunately, when you do get attacked, I mean, it's horrible, but you've got to be transparent about it. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think the West Coast one was. No. And no. yeah, and it wasn't. And and because we can all learn a lot from that. And it also wakes people up. And, and, and to do the, you know, to be able to do the right thing going forward. Uh, I mean, years ago when, you know, security was just coming on the horizon and, you know, breaches and you had OCR and all that kind of stuff that we talked about earlier. I remember sitting with the senior leadership team and I needed a bunch of money to uplift the whole security to deal with HIPAA and everything else that was coming down and putting in DLP and all those systems, which are very expensive. And the way I did it was I walked the team through a actual breach from the beginning of the breach to notifying the local papers to all the way down and, and, and the, the OCR coming in, the potential fines. And at the very end, the last thing was the CEO apologizes to the community. That was the last thing. My CEO looked right at me and goes, I never want that to ever happen. Right. He said, look, I can't promise you hundred percent, but if you give me this money, I can definitely get us from like maybe 50% of it happening to 95% of it not happening. And uh, he looked right at the CFO and said, give him the money. So, I mean, yeah, that's the kind of approach. I think it's, it's, it's fear, but fear gets people to act. One of the things I like to say, a major part of a CISO role is being a cybersecurity evangelist really preaching to the, 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 the community and engaging and creating a culture of security. And these events, even though they're bad for some, and I hope it never happens to one of my organizations, it allows us the ammunition and the, the stories to tell, or really to try to convince people, use it as a storytelling mechanism to show them the significance of what can happen with something very, very small happening within your organization. So yeah, I feel bad for those people that happen, but I think it does allow the industry to move forward and allows people to pay attention more. You got to be able to sell, right, Chuck? I mean, you had to sell that. You had to sell that story. It's the only way well, I'm prepared before the meeting. I was like, first of all, they don't understand security and all the concepts and, and they don't know what data loss prevention is. I can spend all day 
<laughs> educate them on that where I could just get to the bottom line. And then, you know, once I get the money and bring the products in, educate them at that time. So yeah. I chose that approach and, and, it, and it worked. All right, listen, we're running short on time. I'm going to give everyone a chance for a final thought, piece of advice, word of wisdom for your colleagues. A lot of uh, anxiety in the industry right now. Uh, everyone knows that they're already in your network. Ryan says they've been in there six months. They're sitting in the closet. Doesn't make you feel comfortable, but uh, final word of advice. Let's start with you, Chuck. Uh, I, I would just say, I mean, hopefully everybody took, you know, the aware, the heightened awareness that we talked about today, I'm sure a lot of the, the the viewers and listeners here, you know, understand understand that. And um, hopefully, what they're taking away from this is that that we've got to remain diligent, and you can't let um, you know funding get in the way uh, of, of progress. Um, and so that that to me is the the real challenge is how do you keep this, um, you know, without having the West Coast and the East Coast issues front and center, you know, with the boards, with, with your senior leadership group. And I think Steve's right, you know, if you have a CISO that's an evangelist, you know, constantly getting them out front and, and hammering this stuff home um, is, is huge. And it's just anything else that's an investment. Um, you know, if you don't spend money on your network, at some point, your network's going to collapse and you're going to spend a whole lot of money. <laughs> the same thing here. If you don't invest on a regular basis in security each and every year with the latest and greatest products that are coming out and, and, and tools, then that's what's going to happen is you're going to have this issue and it's going to cost you 65 or $70 million or whatever. And, and then all of a sudden, you're going to have to spend a bunch of money on top of that to fix what caused that problem in the first place. So it's, you, you know, it's a whole pay me now, pay me later. Uh, and you might not be the one spending it, right? Cause you might not be around anymore. Uh, it is a career limiting. Uh, it can be a career limiting aspect as well, depending on what role you play in an organization as well. Steve. Um, advice. I would just say not let down your guard as you move to office. The risk is still there. Focus on everything. Keep your eyes open. Do not assume that the risk has been mitigated. Uh, security, I, I, you could have the greatest number of dollars. You could have a, a, a flat a number of tools in place. You could have all the greatest and best tools. But unless you have the processes behind the tools, an ability to execute the tool in a strategic way, following some sort of uh, protocol and guidelines and best practices and really to bring it all together, and focus on the culture of security, making sure that the entire organization is engaged. Tools alone is not going to help you. Money alone is not going to help you. It has to be a holistic view of cybersecurity across the board. Very good, Ryan. Last word. Yeah, I, I, I would say maybe building on what Chuck said about walking through your boards, like what does the breach actually look like and what are the impact of that? And I think to that point, we we referenced it a couple of times. Let me just come out there and say it's the University of Vermont Medical Center, uh, which had that ransomware attack. It's very well chronicled in many news sources, but the New York Times does a particularly good article about it where they they talk about it from multiple different angles. And I think my advice is if you think you need to advise and you need to guide your your hospital board, maybe read that article. 
because it's a very impactful article and it will explain whether you're a, a somebody in the IT organization, whether you're a doctor, whether you're an administrator, whether you're a patient, it explains like the impact of that, of that event. And I, I my advice would be like, be able to go articulate and tell that type of a story to your board. And I think you can probably help move the needle if you're trying to get some investment to go, you know, better protect your environment. All right. Very good. That's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to view upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel. Excellent conversation today. Chuck Podesta, Steve Garaya, and Ryan Witt. I want to thank Proofpoint for making this event possible, and I want to thank your attendees for joining us. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.